in our travels, like between Latrobe and uh, Pittsburgh, we'd go into a town and maybe stop for lunch and the old timers start talking to old timers and, oh, there used to be a brewery here, just about every town. And if we were lucky, it was still there. That's Rich Wagner, author, historian, and colonial brewer. Welcome to Over Beers, a craft beer conversation podcast. My name is Freddie Clark. One day I was going through some email and came upon one from Morris Arboretum talking about a lecture that was being given by Philadelphia brewing historian and colonial brewer Rich Wagner. I'm about a little over an hour away from the Arboretum, so when the day came, off I went. I knew there was a rich history of brewing in the area, but I had no idea just how rich it was. During his talk, Rich mentioned that he had published a book entitled Philadelphia Beer. I knew I wanted to read it, which I did, and I knew I wanted to have him on the podcast, which we're doing right now. Brewing in the U.S. has its history going all the way back to the very beginning when the colonists were coming here from the Old World. Water was considered dangerous because frequently the sources were contaminated. Since the pathogens could not survive through the brewing process, beer was considered a safe and nutritious alternative to drinking water. Ale was a dietary staple in the colonies. It was not uncommon for someone to have their first beer before breakfast and at every meal during the day. I could get with that. Beer and ale was made and consumed in the home at first. As towns grew, commercial breweries would be established, but those took a long time to surpass the brewing done at home. Many homes would even have a room dedicated to brewing near where they cooked. Beer produced in Europe would be far too expensive for the average person to afford at this time. Trading commerce was sparse in the colonies at first, so in order to help spur growth, royal governors borrowed a page from English history in the creation of taverns or inns. The tavern helped encourage travel and trade and brought people into undeveloped areas. They worked in England and they worked in the colonies as well. They not only increased commerce, but they became the social and political centers for the areas as well. As they grew, so did the need for commercial beer. Either the tavern would brew their own, buy from local sources, or small breweries began to pop up in every town or region. Not only did the colonists create beer, but beer also helped to create the social network for the colonies through the taverns and inns. A symbiotic relationship that lasted for a very long time. Now let's get to the conversation with Rich Wagner. He was kind enough to invite me to his home. We sat in his backyard. He poured me one of his brews and we had a conversation over beers. Like my simplest recipe is a half a pound of bag, half a bag of pale malt and six or eight ounces of hops. Okay. I'm just trying to make a light beer to drink. Right. And I'm okay. not trying to do it to a certain style. It's my style. Okay. And it's like wherever I can barter for materials and, and just, you know, use ingredients that I have available or experiment. You know, and people ask me, well, is this a colonial recipe? And I say, well, I'm a colonial brewer. It's <laughs> so my it's recipe. It's recipe. It's a colonial recipe. Well, I, I'm guessing that would have been the more common scenario then, right? Exactly. That's what pe you make your own beer and it was not to any recipe, it was to what you liked and what you had available. And and when I look at the ads in the Pennsylvania Gazette from the 17 whatever 60s or 50s, you don't see any reference to beer styles. Mm -hmm. I think that came later. Okay. I mean, there may I'm, I, I'm not an expert on this and I know that Britain, Britain has a long tradition of this and there may have been things that were called certain by certain names in certain regions or whatever but as far as the 
I don't see extra special bitter. I don't see mm -hmm. even India Pale Ale. I don't see any of those styles. And in the Brewer's Day books that I'm looking at, I don't see any reference to a type of hops. Mm -hmm. They were whatever hops that they could buy from the farmers that season, right. whatever they were growing. And they were coming from England, so they were probably growing the same varieties that they grew over there. Uh, but what they did was they would, during a brewing, they would do the first runnings, they would collect that, and then boil that, add the hops, and then that would go into this cool ship mm -hmm. at the end of the boil. Then they'd have another mash going where they sent the hot water through the mash, add a little bit more malt, but then do a second one, get that into the kettle, okay, and then that's your middling beer. Okay. And then at the last one, where you might have to add molasses to even get enough sugar to ferment, that's your small beer. Mm -hmm. And so what I discovered was that, you know, in the brewing process today, cooling the wort from the kettle is a real log jam because it's going through this restrictive uh, wort chiller device mm -hmm. where you're, you know, trying to have water going the other way that's cold and so forth. And it's going through a narrow tube. Well, with the, with the cool ship, basically, you pull the plug and that kettle is drained like that goes right out so when you have three of them or six of them in your upstairs that's how the they, that's how they could accomplish these three different brews in mm. a certain amount in that amount of time Time, right it's, okay. it's one of the things that I discovered that's vastly different like yeah. once you wrap your head around how they were using these cool ships it explains a lot well if you're but I mean today they thought the idea of doing a second or third running is nothing new but it, it doesn't it doesn't it rarely is done in commercial brewing so and so, but some people will do that as a, a you know, a nod to a past tradition or mm -hmm. something. As if they want to do a, something special, you know, they'll say, well, this is our small beer right. or whatever. Uh, so, but, but in these ads, it was strong beer, middle and beer, and small beer. And so the strong beer is what a ship captain would have. Mm -hmm. That would be your ale. Okay. That would be your, you know, six, seven percent ale that could be kept that had enough alcohol that it would have enough uh, shelf life or whatever and had been aged mm -hmm. and then the middle and then the small beer were more your present use right. beer what they Table. called present use okay the, and they were all it was by alcohol so the small beer was the cheapest the poor person maybe could afford that middle and beer was a little was maybe your you know three or three or four percent the small beer was around two mm -hmm. probably and the small beer is probably what the average housewife was making in her home with molasses, okay. without having to go through all this special equipment of having a mash tub and all this other stuff, they could have a couple of these pottery crocks to, as fermenters, and then just like you might make iced tea from day to day in the summertime, you know, they would have some kind of a fermentation going, and then the next day when they started running low, they'd boil some water, mix it with molasses, let it cool down, and then possibly mix that with water but then add that to your fermenter and then it was only fermenting for a couple of days it was real sour it was real you know had stuff you know floating around in it and so forth but that was just just well, something to drink it, it been still safer than the water at the time it was preferable <laughs> yeah. in many cases although you know there were wells and there was good water back then mm -hmm. i mean there were people who drank water who drank water and yeah. you, there were wells that were known to be good yeah but even in Philadelphia, along Dock Creek, 
you know, they had tanneries and, and other industries that quickly developed, and it had long been the tradition to use a creek as a public sewer. I mean, mm-hmm. where else are you going to dump this waste from your industry? So that got polluted. Wells got polluted very early on, and, and right. certainly that whole thing about beer being, uh, you know, better than or cl- safer than water is, it, in general, it's true. It's true, yeah. And I, I, in, in, the, in the looking that I've been doing, and you know, a, 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 my, a minuscule amount compared to what you, the research you've done, I, I'm always fascinated that you know, it, especially today with it being such a man's industry right now, um, that women it was mostly women. Well, it's for because in the, in the in the home it was because yeah. it was just one of many things that had to be done to run the household, right. and that fell upon the woman, and so brewing was among the cooking and and the kitchen type things so mm-hmm. that was why and then if you look at the evolution of it when when it starts to become an industry then it starts to become equipment and property intensive it's the people who have the capital the capitalists if you will who can build a large building and so forth and so on but you know up until that time it was mostly just like all the other things that you know Knitting mills were preceded by everybody doing spinning and weaving in their own home. So mm-hmm. beer was the same, same way. way. Just was it was part of what they referred to as housewifery. Housewifery, okay. And you also had husbandry, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily the husband, but it's like beekeeping and all the things that you would do to be self-sufficient and have a high quality of life. Right. That's yeah. That's pretty wild. So now I, I did pick up your book, and um, I'm amazed at the level of detail that you were able to find about colonial brewing in Philadelphia. I mean, it, when I read through it, it's like the the amount of, the sheer number of brewers through through the years, and how you were able to track them down and, and chase them down, I found fascinating. I credit that to the number of collections in the city. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've made that abundantly clear in, in, in the book, but you know, every time I think I've seen all the libraries, and they're not all libraries per se, some of them are collections. Uh, every time I think I've seen them all, somebody's, oh, did you hear about this one or that one? The one I've heard of most recently that I haven't been to is the, the old Academy of Natural Sciences, which is now part of Drexel University. They have a library, and they have, like, devoted to botany. Mm-hmm. And so I could look up to see what practices or what was being written about barley growing and hop growing in the Delaware Valley in the same time period. And I haven't done that yet, but mm-hmm. that's just one more way of going deeper, okay. you know, as you, what you're alluding to. So are they, are, is a lot of it public or a lot, is a lot of it private? Is a lot of it no, historic? No, I, I mean, I haven't gone to anything that isn't, is not available to, to anybody. anybody. I mean, you okay. have to make arrangements right. to some of these places and sometimes they will charge you. I mean, every that's how these people stay in business. But mm-hmm. the Historical Society of Pennsylvania is just, I don't, I think, un, unparalleled. Yeah. But I, I did want to mention on the subject of colonial brewing for your listeners in New Jersey that uh, in Burlington City, that brewery, the Innis Brewery, that dates back to like 1680 is still standing. Yes, I remember you saying that at the talk, yeah. And I call it the brewery that Stucco saved because somebody wrapped that up in stone (laughs) and and I told somebody last weekend, otherwise it'd probably be a pile of dust. Right. 
but it's five years older than the first brewery in Philadelphia. And the guy that started the first brewery in Philadelphia died two years later, and the guy that had the brewery in Burlington took that over. Okay. And so there was all this cross-pollination across the river. A bunch of people from Philadelphia had interests in the Burlington breweries and vice versa. So okay. it's really... So they went back and forth. That and got yeah. deep. You know, yeah. I, I concentrate my study on Pennsylvania. And since I live in the area, I can really focus on Philadelphia. But never really looking at the collections in New Jersey. So um, the guy who bought this brewery did all this research. He got it on board. He got the Historical Society on board. He wants to get a plaque and so forth and so on. But, I mean, he's mm-hmm. on solid historic ground as far as they're concerned. Mm-hmm. And he wants to actually brew beer there. He wants to start it up again. So, I mean, that would really be cool. Yeah, that would be very cool. 1680. And when I stand there, I mean, you're looking at from the front door. You're looking out at the river. And with my overactive imagination, I'm looking at those sailing vessels being unloaded, Mm -hmm. cargoes of barley coming to the silos that this guy had for his malt house two blocks in from the from the docks. You know, that's wild. Yeah, I I I enjoy that immensely, and also because of the fact that I'm also a photographer, and you know, in today's day and age, everybody talks about the tech, you know, Photoshop and computer work and everything. But we're, nobody's doing anything that hasn't already been done. We might have more impressive tools to do it with, but at its basics, at its most elemental, it's all, it's really the same. And, well, and, and, and the chemistry of brewing, the chemistry of yeast and fermentation is no different today than it was when 400 I, years ago. When I do a colonial brewing demonstration, I frequently tell them that I'm doing the same thing that they do every day in Newark, New Jersey, at Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> well, this is better than what they're making <laughs> but, in Newark, But I don't New have electric pumps, and right. I don't have hoses and stainless steel. I have a copper kettle over an open fire, and I move my liquids around with a wooden bucket on a stick. So, <laughs> But it's just, as you said, it's the same process. Right. And that's one of the things that I find so fascinating about showing people how it was done just with the more primitive implements or, you know, mm-hmm. without all the without all the modern technology. And what got you in, interested in that in the first place? Like, what was the what was the spark of this is going to be something I'm going to really investigate? I don't know. You know, I was just thinking about that the other day because when I was in Boy Scouts and I did photo, photography merit badge and I, I was reading about the origins of photography and these guys would be out in the woods in tents with their that would be their dark room and they'd be mm-hmm. you know having these glass plates and so forth and I thought wow that would really be cool to try to reproduce this old technology so I think I've had that gene or whatever okay. you want to call it in me but what started me on this path was actually uh, Pensbury Manor they had an herb garden and they had a brew house they had the bacon brew house and so I was a home brewer and I said uh, could I see about starting some hops in your herb garden? And the gardener helped me get some poles to make a trellis, and we grew hops. And then they, in their brew house, they had a little chamber where you could uh, dry the hops mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. racks and so forth. So we experimented to make sure that the thing would, would uh, you know, the chimney was sound and so forth, and we dried the hops the first year. And then they said, we're having this equipment made, uh, 
a cooper is making us some re reproductions of the equipment that they would have used at Pensbury Manor, would you be interested in helping us interpret that process? Well, of course, I hedged, you know, I didn't want to do anything like that, you know. New York Minute? That... <laughs> so I found myself figuring out how to use all these wooden tubs and so forth. So that's really what got me started. started. I made, well, I, okay. they had two full 30-some-gallon barrels, and I, my, my goal was to fill one of them up. You know, okay. I wanted to go take it that far. I never ended up with that much wood, okay. but I did, on two different occasions, finish the beer, bottle it, served it, you know, we, we drank it and so mm -hmm. forth. And that was my introduction to period brewing, period. colonial brewing, whatever you want to call it. Okay. Now, what about brewing in general? How long, how long ago was that? Well, that was like 1983. I made my first batch of homebrew, and I had been okay. reading about it for a couple years before that. It was 1980 that a friend and myself and our girlfriends went on this cross-Pennsylvania tour of all the breweries that had hospitality rooms. Okay. So we were camping. We'd go to a, you know, Stoney's Brewery in Smithton, Pennsylvania, and they would take the tour, and then they'd give you a beer in the hospitality room, and then we'd go to a state park, and then t the next day we went to Rolling Rock in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and we went to the Pittsburgh Brewing Company. Yep. So we got back after a week, and I think there were nine breweries in business in Pennsylvania, and we had only missed three. Okay. So... We had this book that somebody had published that showed where all the breweries were in the country. And I looked at Pennsylvania, and it was like one of the thickest chapters, and I said, you know, because in our travels, like between Latrobe and uh, Pittsburgh, we'd go into a town and maybe stop for lunch, and the old-timers start talking to old-timers, and, oh, there used to be a brewery here. Just yep. about every town, and if we were lucky, it was still there. Yep. It's hulking wreck with big holes punched in the side of the building so they could drag the tanks out and sell them in Mexico or such as some mm -hmm. other, you know, regional brewer that was hoping to hold on by the skin of their teeth, you know. So when we got done, I said, we ought to go to all these towns that are in this book that ever had a brewery and find out if there's anything standing there. Mm -hmm. And my friend looked at me just like, you know, yeah, who... That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> well, it took us about six years going on vacation. We didn't go to every one of those towns, but we went to like four. I, we went to at least 400 different sites, different okay. addresses, and found something to photograph at about half of them. Okay. And in some cases, that might have been a foundation, might have been a wall, it might have been a, 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 a lagering cellar in the side of a hill, or even in some cases, the office building or the garage mm -hmm. or in... More recently, I've been counting their brewery saloons and hotels because a lot of times those would remain because they could continue as a viable business even if the brewery closed. Right, even like through prohibition or whatever right. knocked it out. Yeah. Right. Well, it's funny because growing up, um, I grew up on Staten Island, and Staten Island had a pretty good number of breweries. R and H, R and H, yeah, Rubisham and Habersham yeah. uh, or yeah, something, something like that. <laughs> but and right down the street from my grandparents. And my grandfather remembered it being a place that he would go to. There was a, it was like more what you would call today a brew pub, um, tavern. It was called Damien's Hofbrau House, and they had it had closed. The restaurant in part of it was boarded up, but the 
tunnels and caves that they built into the side of this mountain that they used to store and keep everything cool where you could walk into. So I remember, you know, my grandfather and I working wow. our way through and finding, you know, seeing some old casks that had been beaten up wow. and, and torn up and, you know. Well, that but, probably uh, ignited your imagination, so you end up doing something about beer. You were you were a teacher, right? Yes. A school teacher? Yes. Okay, how long did you teach I, for? I was a sci- high school science teacher for 23 years. Okay. Then I went to Siebel. I took the diploma course, and then I worked in breweries in Philly for uh, seven years. But all through that time, I had been doing my colonial brewing demonstrations and writing and speaking and things. So mm-hmm. I don't work for any breweries now, but I we do our colonial, do that maybe five or six times a year. Okay. And then I do talks. Like I just gave a talk on Saturday at the Fairmount Waterworks Interpretive Center on breweries on the Schuylkill. Breweries on the Schuylkill, okay. In Philly. In Philly, okay. And like two weeks before that, I did the same, I did a different talk at the same place for the Society for Industrial Archaeology that covered all the breweries from the mouth of the river to the head up in Pottsville. Okay. Which is funny because that's where you know where, you know who is, you know. Pottsville. Yingling. Oh, Yingling, okay. And the funny thing is, the reason that it got its start in in Pottsville in 1829 is that's the year that they finished the canal. Okay, so they could transport. And D.G. Yingling was looking for a place to start a brewery in Lancaster, and they said, we got plenty of breweries in Lancaster, kid. They didn't say, uh, go west, young man. They said... (laughs) Go to the coal fields, young man, and because they knew once that canal was up and running, it was be it was going to be a boom town. Right, and it was. It and was. he's still he's still booming. still still booming, yeah, still booming <laughs> and brewing. Yep, three breweries, one in Tampa, one in Pottsville, and a more modern plant that they built at the turn of the century in Port Carbon. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know they had three of them. Yeah, yeah. they're in hmm. the old Schaefer Brewery, which became the old Stroh Brewery in Tampa. Okay. In the shadow of the eagle, of another right. eagle. <laughs> right, okay. So, yeah, and they're, they are an anomaly as far as the fairly large brewers go. The, the, the traditional brewers are the ones that the sales are flat and so forth. And the only thing I can attribute it to, aside from their skill, is the fact that this mystique of being America's oldest brewer, I think that goes a long way for their success. Today? Well... Keeping them in business uh, and their success today. Right. Well, so how how did they navigate? I mean, the biggest thing that the big equalizer or destroyer of the beer industry in this country was prohibition, for the most part. Right. I mean, it it, it took us down from hundreds of brewers, local brewers, regional brewers, okay. down to only and then after that, a, a it was handful. television. Right. Right. And advertising because and, everybody and, in Pottsville, let's say, and that's. They were an anomaly too, but let's say everybody in Philly, they watch the ball game. The ball game's being advertised by Ballantyne, a beer made in Newark, New Jersey, but so now everybody's buying this beer that isn't made in Philadelphia anymore. And that's mm-hmm. how the big breweries got so big because with their economies of scale, they could uh, devote so much more to this, av- this advertising. Mm-hmm. And um, Yangling navigated it Interestingly, they did everything they could to get as much production out of their old plant in the side of the Mahantango Mountain where they carved their vaults. Uh, Their old brewmaster, uh, Ray Norbert, started doing high-gravity brewing. Like, he was able to, like, pump a third more 
production out of their plant without adding any more equipment. Um, but he formulated, they started coming out with black and tan. That okay. was an old favorite. Nobody was making that kind of a thing anymore. And it kind of caught on. Mm-hmm. And then Ray developed traditional lager. Mm-hmm. And so it looked a little darker, but it wasn't like a heavy beer. And so it kind of caught on. And it didn't just kind of caught on. That's their flagship now. And that's right. what's, that is what took them to where they are today. Mm-hmm. And what I think is cool is now they're coming out with seasonals mm-hmm. that they haven't made for over 100 years. Like they came, came out with their Bach and they came out with their, uh, their, their uh, summer wheat beer was just... I mean, you couldn't tell the difference between that and Weinstefan. Mm-hmm. They nailed it mm-hmm. right on. And I'm not here to advertise right, for no, them, no, but, but I, it, I have a special interest in them because they are so they are they are such a historic brewery, mm-hmm. and because they are now so successful. All this television advertising in the '50s and the '60s and so forth, and you know, the cigarette company buys Miller. Now they apply all that psychological knowledge they have mm-hmm. about advertising. And so now they start, beer is not just something to drink. It's like, you know, I, I mean, it's funny the way they, they appeal to different levels, like economic levels, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, a businessman that made this much money, smoked this kind of cigarettes, drove this kind of car, drank this kind of whiskey, you know, mm-hmm. and they did that with beer. Mm-hmm. And so like the advantage that the regional breweries had was they had a low price. Right. And so that was, if anything, they could keep their business that way. Mm-hmm. And so once people got sold on this image and advertising, like they turned away from the locally produced beers, and that's what happened. That's what and that's. So, that, so do you think advertising was worse than prohibition? Well, it was a different. It was a different thing. To give you an example, in Philadelphia, for example. When Prohibition arrived in 1920, roughly speaking, there were 40 breweries. Mm-hmm. 30, 1933, they repealed Prohibition. 20 tried to come back. Mm-hmm. A dozen basically did. Okay. And then it was a matter of attrition. This year, two would go out of business. A couple years later, one would... Okay. Until we were left with the final four. And then Gretz closed in 1960. Esslinger closed in 65. Wortleaves closed in 1980. Schmitz closed in 1970. And then there were none. That was it. Like the Little Indians poem. So basically, that's a microcosm of what was was happening in the industry. Right, right. So it it was the big bang and then chipping away. And the loss of the regional support that had been, that had been their success in the older time, in previous years. Right, okay. That's a real shame. Yeah. And what's funny now is a lot of these brands are coming back. People have this nostalgia. So it's ironic, first of all, you know that Anheuser-Busch purchased the Rolling Rock brand. Mm-hmm. So you can't sell Rolling Rock in Latrobe anymore. But that brewery is a big modern brewery. I mean, when before Anheuser-Busch bought it, it was owned by uh, Labatt's or mm-hmm. one of the whatever company they, they're associated with. So... Now they're making like a half a dozen of these old Western Pennsylvania regionals. They're pumping out Iron City, Stoney's, Duquesne, Fort Pitt, and I haven't checked lately, you know, but I keep hearing that somebody else wants to revive one of these old brands. And mm-hmm. they're even doing it with some of the big 
national brands that people remember from the 50s and 60s that, that like became one of Heilemann's beers and that was priced beer for $3 a case and nobody right. cared about it anymore, <laughs> right. you know. But some of them, I mean, I, I forget all of them now, but there's, there is an interest in, in reviving a lot of yeah. them. Well, it is great that, it, that, they're at, that people are looking backwards, too, to, to just, find them. You know what I... I, I find it... I don't know what the word to describe what I find it, but the fact that I can recite a Schaefer radio commercial from 40 <laughs> years ago, that's taken up space in my brain. Yep. It's the and, one beer to have when you have it more than one. Uh, <laughs> and the same thing. I mean, the fact that that advertising is still alive in the consciousness of old people or whatever, <laughs> people that remember listening to the radio and hearing those ads, that they would even buy that brand. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just, that blows my mind. That, yep. that, you know, and it's, you know, they're not making it in the same old brewery. They're hiring somebody to hear, this is the recipe we think it was, you know, or whatever. But they right. have the, all the rights to the to the labels and the, and the artwork and stuff. Uh, uh, Valentine, mm -hmm. they made a huge thing and apparently it didn't last because they made their you know Burton Ale or something at Christmas time and they had some really big beers and then it just uh, last I heard they weren't doing that anymore yeah I don't think they are last time I saw the I saw their IPA and I have so are they still making that this was a two years ago okay so I'm Probably not sure not. Okay. I haven't and I well, haven't the, sought it out again the one I see <laughs> on, online sometimes is face as uh, Narragansett mm -hmm. up in Rhode Island. Yep. And we've been going up to do our brewing demonstration in New Hampshire. And I've been waiting for them to get a brewery so I can take a tour. And every year before we go up, I'll email them and then, no, no, we're still contract brewing right. or whatever. But that's another one of these brands. And, you know, the story about that brewery is the guy showed up on work on Monday and the brewery was closed. Mm -hmm. So that building stood there with like coffee cups still on the desk. It was like this frozen in time museum of the brewing industry. Because right. that's all, I mean, they just shut the door and that was it. And that was it, nobody had any warning. Huh. And one of these old timers I was telling you about earlier, uh, Guy Hagner, one of his first jobs out of uh, brewing school was at the Pabst plant in Newark. And the engineers are on strike and they're saying, no, they can't run the brewery without us. And the management said, well, then we won't run the brewery. We're sending it to China. You're all out of work. So his first job was to empty all the tanks of beer. To dump it? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's that could give somebody post-traumatic stress. <laughs> I mean, if you care about beer that yeah. much, and here you finally get a job and you're getting a paycheck, and the first thing they have to ask you to do is put this down the sewer. Yeah. Put it all down the sewer. And one of the old timers that he asked about it says, well, you know, you can't just put it in the sewer because it's under pressure and all the sewer things in Newark are going to have suds coming up. up out of them. You know? That would be great. You know how many right. tanks and beer? That's, <laughs> yeah. A place like that is huge. Wow. I do, it is interesting to me how, like when you mentioned the regionals and the contract brewing mm -hmm. is that those few that were able to survive helped to spur on this recent well surge it kind of because they as they were and they were hitting hard times they needed to clear out you know they had extra capacity and then as the craft brew world became a thing again and became popular 
how they did help to make that possible. There were two on the East Coast that are the biggest ones, which was FX Matt in Utica, New York, and The Lion in Wilkes-Barre. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in Philadelphia, you had Dock Street. So they started a contract brand made in Utica. And this, like you just said, was a boon for Utica because they were in tough times, very competitive market. And so they have empty tanks, and now somebody comes. And so you tell them, okay, our batch size is, I'm going to make up some numbers. Let's Mm -hmm. say uh, you have to get 2,000 cases. That's our batch size. Okay, you buy all the materials. You buy all the packaging. Uh, We'll make the beer. We'll put it in kegs and and bottles and cans, whatever you want. And then we put it on the loading dock, and then it's... it's, uh, it's on you. Everything else, the risk is on you. Right. They assumed no risk. Yep. This was gravy for them because it was a high-end product. It was a beer like they hadn't made since before the war. It was an all-malt beer. They saw the success of these brands like Dock Street. You may remember New Amsterdam mm-hmm. was also an early contract at Utica in Utica. So they saw the success of this. They start making their own varieties of these mm-hmm. all-malt beers, and then they start being able to charge super-premium prices for super-premium beers. And what you just said happened. It, it, it helped them uh, enormously, mm-hmm. and, but it also got these fledgling companies uh, going with a market, a, a, an active market, uh, raising money so that they could build their own. And Brooklyn, of course, is a, another great example of that. Mm-hmm. Started out in Utica. Yep. It took them years, but they finally got their so-called bricks and mortar plant in Brooklyn. Yeah. So. Sam, Sam Adams, they were, they were contract Pittsburgh. out of Cincinnati, right? Pittsburgh. Yep. Pittsburgh Brewing. Then Stoney's in Smithton. Uh, they ended up buying the Hudipole Brewery or the Shenling Brewery in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And now they own the one in uh, Fogelsville or Brinigsville, the old Schaefer, Stroh, Pabst plant in the Lehigh Valley. Okay. So those are their two production facilities, and they are huge modern plants. Yep. So, yeah, but they started out craft. Uh, Actually, I think Sam Adams might have been craft brewed in Germany. I, I, I had this all at the time when it was all happening. They were made in like six different places, mm-hmm. I think, and one of them actually was in Germany. One of them was. Uh, wow. You could look that yeah, up. All right. I, I, you know, I, I, I can't swear to that, but I'm pretty okay. sure that was the, the case that they had been made in like at least six different breweries. Down the road on the horizon, I mean, do you see, craft beer is still? It seems to maybe have had a spurt, a growth spurt and then kind of leveled out. Um, Do you think there's still room for more? Or do you think we've plateaued? Well, I just wrote a story about brewing in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which is I'm a resident. So in order to do that, I had to preface it with starting in 1987, all these law changes and all the stuff that happened to bring us where we are today. Mm -hmm. And so my take on it is with the advent of the nano brewery, Every restaurant that can shoehorn a Blickman home brewing system in there is now can have a brewery license. Mm-hmm. And in Pennsylvania can now have two additional stores where they can sell their product. I mean, they could be just like pizza shops and nail salons. Mm-hmm. 
and I hate to trivialize it, but in other words, as long as they don't try to compete for shelf space and things like that, if they just want to serve their own thing and have a tasting room and that's it, there's room for a million of them. I mean, mm -hmm. there's room for unlimited. Unlimited, yeah. Now, it's going to affect people. I had somebody, unnamed source at the Boston Beer Company saying, all these new guys, it's starting to affect us. Mm -hmm. And I had to stifle a laugh because not that I wish anything bad on Sam Adams, but that's what you did to the big three or yep. four 30 or 40 years ago. Yep. So, you know, what the, goes around comes around. Well, that's, it's funny because in New Jersey, we're going through with the craft brewers, almost a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe civil war is too strong of a shake term. Shake up. Shake up, where a good chunk of the bigger brewers left the Brewers Association oh, yes. and started their own right. thing. And it's it's funny the way how you say... Well, they have different interests now. That right. was what it all came... The crux of the matter was when you reach this level, you have different interests. Right. And, and the fact that now these guys are worried that these sm real small, ultra-local are starting to pull taps from them. So if, you know you had a good account and maybe you had one or two taps on all the time well now they're they're going to the guy down the street is grabbing those one or two taps and it's happening enough that it's starting to hurt the, them the tasting room is a whole cultural phenomenon mm -hmm. yeah uh, we were just up at one in uh, Pottstown and it's just I just was talking to somebody about this it's not like a bunch of old guys smoking cigars telling dirty jokes it's families and mm -hmm. kids they're playing Jenga they have blocks they have board games and people just come and hang out it's casual food and good beer and they don't have a whole lot invested I mean some of these places even have like arrangements with the local people to deliver food so yep. they, they don't even have to have a kitchen right well New Jersey you can't have a kitchen Oh, that's the you can't okay. you can't yeah, serve everybody's food. different yep. there that way. But, but you know, it's it's a whole new kind of culture, mm -hmm. and it is, and it will it it is it. I'm sure it has impacted licensees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and it, it is amazing to see because you can almost by looking at their tap rooms nowadays, you can almost peg when they opened before you look at any literature or see anything about it because the older places still have that. Industrial park, bare. Like here's the here's the tap room, the bar, and over right there are the tanks, and it looks very industrial, and you could tell it was very functional, right? The newer places look beautiful. They look as good or better than any restaurant you're going to go to. You know, a, a good amount of money spent on the aesthetics, and it's just a very different still that cool vibe and like you say it's not it's not a bunch of old guys so smoking cigars but that very you know it's becoming more and more the aesthetic is more welcoming for families we, and everybody we took a little getaway weekend to atlantic city and we hit a couple brew pubs on the way down mm -hmm. and every time i had a list or i had a you know mid-atlantic brewing news or something and then we drive we're in atco and i'm going we're going past the shopping center and it says Atco Brewing Company. Yep. That wasn't on my list. You can't keep up anymore, but yep. it was so funny. You had, uh, I can't even name them all. You had Vinyl in, vinyl, ha yep. in ha had yep. Hamilton, and that had been the, the home of a regional brewery 
which is now home to a new brewery, and there's one around the corner from that. Right. And Hamilton has three. Yeah. Three yeah, breweries. Yeah. Vinyl <laughs> and these other two. <laughs> and and then more. You know, yep. like we get further further down the line. It's like yep. every town. So it's really wild. And New Jersey was, it was late coming yes. in New Jersey. Very late coming, yes. And I, I mean, guess, I don't f- remember if Triumph was the, f- no, I was there. Wait, I was there when the one in, uh, oh, the ship in opened. Okay. I was there the that morning. They had a guy playing a bagpipe out front. Okay. I have slides of that. <laughs> okay. I thought it was like 1994 yep. or 95. Yep. So I, I interviewed somebody on for the podcast, uh, Gretchen. For she owned opened the place Little Dog, and but she started at the at the, ship sh- at the ship in. Yeah. And that is really a neat place. Yeah. Because they were people from England. Uh, you know, I had been on a few bar tours there's the bar tourists of america back in the 80s mm-hmm. and that was a stop to go to because they were the only place where you could get um watney's uh milk stout or some some kind of milk stout that nobody mac mac one of these things but in other words because they had an interest in all this stuff that, that nobody else had mm-hmm. and maybe some beer engines and stuff but back in in that day before they were even a brew pub they were into having these imported beers right you know, the ones you could get back then okay you know, it's, it, what I what I have found interesting. So, the, beer, Germany, Czech, England. You know, we, the United States, built on that. Took those styles. Took those recipes. As you know, but now it's interesting to see it going back the other way. To see when you go there now, when you go over the over the we're over somebody the ocean, to copy. We're, we've become yeah. Like do that's we really we put that's the American something. stamp on beer, and now old world is mimicking new world. That's some, that's saying yeah. something. Yeah, I, I found that very interesting to see. And if I could just take it back uh, over a hundred years, 1876, the Centennial Exhibition, Bergner and Engel gets a diploma. Two years later, in Paris, they win the Grand Prix. An American brewer in an international beer competition in Paris wins the grand prize. In the 1860s. 1878. It's 78, And okay. the German brewers must have been taking notice. Yeah. Because that was their domain, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Just what oh, you're yeah. saying. And yeah. now we're, it's the same way. Like, a couple years ago, uh, the Italian craft brew scene was big. Uh-huh. And what they said about that was that they didn't really have anything to live up to because they had no beer culture to speak of. Okay. I think Italy has maybe two breweries and they make, you know, standard light lager. But they're making beer with just, in some cases, looking to what we were doing over here, but then experimenting with all the ingredients that they could add to mm-hmm. beer that, you know, how people... It's, it gets to the point of being ridiculous anymore <laughs> of what we're going to call, you know, an ingredient for beer. But right. they were the one that stands in my mind was chestnut. They would use chestnuts in beer, and I, <laughs> that surprised me because nuts are typically oily, and you don't want that kind of ingredient. But mm-hmm. you know, there's probably ways around that. Hmm. But that was another case where they're saying, "Oh, look at all this innovation over here." We can do the same thing here. Right. So we've inspired yeah. uh, a renaissance worldwide, yeah. if you will. <laughs> I heard the other day that London now is up to 70 craft breweries. Some wow. crazy number like that. Well, and if you want to take it back to the beginning of all this, it was camera. It was the Citizens Action Group, the campaign for real ale that said, 
you guys aren't even making beer anymore. You're making this factory blah, blah, you know, on and on. And they started demanding, we want a cask ale made to the specifications, blah, blah. We want this tradition brought back. And the brewers took notice, probably reluctantly. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it did make changes and in inroads, but that's what got the people's attention in this country. Mm-hmm. That was what started to stem the tide. Yep. And it's that's very interesting that, you know, because back in those days, you'd talk to any industry analyst, and they were joking around. Oh, let me check my pocket. How many microbreweries would fit in there? <laughs> you know, ah, uh, ha, ha. You know, we're producing, you know, blah, blah, honk, honk. And now they're looking for jobs, and the craft brewery, industry might have a job for them. <laughs> yeah. or, or they're buying up. But no, no, I mean, I'm reading this, that the craft brewing industry employs more than the big four, the, the, the mainstream industry, okay. because it's labor-intensive and right. because it requires a lot more people. Well, yeah, and at, what, 7,000-ish across the country now? Uh, There's uh, so much yeah, opportunity yes. for yes. work then. Yeah. Yes. So are there more books in your horizon? Are you thinking about writing anymore? I mean, you're saying I, you're, you're writing some articles. I... I I'm regularly contributing to the Breweriana Collectors uh, magazines, and uh, I did a lot of research on colonial taverns in Philadelphia. And so I'd like to do something with that, but I haven't had anybody, I haven't pursued it. Mm-hmm. But the other one, uh, I kind of got reinvigorated with my colonial brewing a couple years ago, and I said, you know, I. I should, you know, a lot of times we would go to one of these events and we would just dump the wart because it was like, once it's cooled off, it's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. If you've got to drive it home and you got to work with it the next day and all this. So I, I just said, you know, a lot of times it's just easier. It's the end of the day. It's dark. You don't want to mess with it. So I, I, I made a cool ship and that completed my colonial brewing system so that I now had the hot side and the cold, cold side. side and I said okay I'm going to finish some of these beers and so I just pulled out all the stops I was doing a lot of brewing in the backyard where I'm right next to the cellar mm-hmm. where I'm going to ferment it I don't I'm, you know it, uh, I can keep that risk to a minimum and I started experimenting I tried that whole thing I was describing earlier about doing three different well I did two different uh, mashes okay. with the same uh, you know I did a, a bigger beer and a smaller beer and of course the way I do it like I was adding some uh, adjuncts or some corn syrup or something and so my second batch ends up being a higher gravity than my first batch <laughs> and you know I'm not using a thermometer and the, so uh, I started keeping notes and I started doing that so I actually put a, a little illustrated uh you know, flicker book together called The Primitive Practical Brewer. Hmm. And I would love to do a book that shows, you know, I'll just give you an example. I, I said something about my the beer, the, the malt silo down in the basement. My wife says, we have a malt silo in the basement? Well, I have a big metal drum that chemicals came in, but I put my sacks of grain in there to keep them dry mm-hmm. and uh, God forbid any... Uh, rodents or anything, but that kind of thing. You know, looking at everything, I don't call it firewood, I call it fuel. Mm-hmm. And I start talking about fuel efficiency. And I start doing all the stuff that a brewer would do 
regardless of what century they were in because everybody wants to get the most for their money mm-hmm. and they want right. to be as efficient as possible. So I have had a ball the last five years and keeping copious notes and I, I would really like to do an illustrated guide oh. uh, to, huh. to doing this. And yeah. as you taste my own, the beer that I have made in that method, it's probably uh, not for everybody, but it is authentic yeah. in the way that it's been produced. Yeah. And it's... It's no worse than anything else I've tasted in any tap room when when someone is experimenting, right? When, so my, it's... when my beers start <laughs> tasting sour and people start telling me that, I tell them how much they'd pay for it if they were in some Belgian cafe in right. Philly. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I will tell you this. I made and my I made a beer. It, it, it see my, my mash ton is cypress, which is a pine wood. So I think that really, I never thought that like an hour in the mash tun would have that great of an effect on the, the overall flavor. Uh-huh. I think maybe it does. It does, yeah. But I had a batch that was pretty sour, and I just, you know, I, I said, okay, I'm not gonna, I'll just leave it. So it was in the basement in a corny for about two years. And I needed, I was gonna brew, and I needed cornies, and I, ah, oh, this one's been here for a while. And I opened it up, and I started pouring it out, and I smelled it, and I go, wait a minute, I got a pitcher. I poured a glass, I take it upstairs, I give it to my wife. She goes, best sour beer ever. <laughs> and neither of us are a fan of sour mm-hmm. beer, but when I went to Allagash in Portland, Maine, mm-hmm. to see their cool ship, he went through this whole thing where there's a like a this extended process that goes through the sour cycle and he had a whole explanation of it where things finally you know come to a more acceptable level so that's something i'd really like to experiment mm-hmm. with because the, the beer you're tasting now i told you i made in the fall it's been in the refrigerator since then i mean since it since it finished fermentation so I'm, I have a, several of these now that are over a year old, and I'm going to be anxious to see if they've improved. There you go. Hopefully they have. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it goes in the sewer. <laughs> well, don't blow up Newark. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rich. You can find his book, Philadelphia Beer, on Amazon. Check out his website, pabrewerryhistorians.tripod.com, and catch him on Saturday, October 20th, when he will be doing his colonial brewing demonstration at the oldest standing brewery building in the U.S. during the historic Burlington Festival. As always, check out the blog at overbeers.beer. Please leave a rating for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps, and I appreciate it. You can leave a comment for the blog. You can leave a comment on the blog or send me an email. I'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas for the show. The email address is cheers at santefoto.com. We've got a new Instagram account at overbeerspod. And I'm Freddie Clark. I'm going to go have a beer, but I'll be back real soon with more conversations over beers. <laughs>